the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency is going on tour. It'll hold 11 public listening sessions across the country this fall to get feedback on a new law. Enacted this year, the law would require critical infrastructure companies to report cybersecurity incidents to the government. CISA wants public input on a number of questions about these forthcoming regulations to carry out the law. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me with more. And what is CISA's plan for the Cyber Incident Reporting Roadshow? Is that their word for it? (laughs) They're taking it on tour. They love rock and roll acronyms over there at CISA. But the agency just released a request for information this week on the Cyber Incident Reporting for Critical Infrastructure Act of 2022. And under that law passed, as you said earlier this year, Critical infrastructure entities will have to report cyber incidents to CISA within 72 hours of them occurring or ransomware attacks within 24 hours. And there are 16 critical infrastructure sectors ranging from everything to energy to water to emergency services and IT. That's potentially tens of thousands of companies. So it's a big law that CISA is now turning into rules. Uh, CISA has until 2024 to finalize those regulations, though. So now it's going on this public listening tour. It's asking for feedback. It's going to places like Salt Lake City, Oakland, California. There will be one in D.C., of course, with that date, too, to be determined. CISA Director Jen Easterly talked about this upcoming roadshow at the Billington Cybersecurity Conference last week. The other thing we're doing is listening sessions, 11 of them around the country. I'm very excited for that. As you know, I spent over a decade at the National Security Agency, so I'm very good at listening. So just just making sure everybody's awake this morning. My goal as as the director sort of leading, leading this process is to ensure maximum transparency, make sure it's a consultative process, and ensure harmonization. And what are the key questions CISA feels it has to get answered? Yeah, well, one key question is how they define the scope of the incident reporting mandate. Who should have to report? We said critical infrastructure companies. Well, what does that mean within the the terms of this regulation? It's called a covered entity that CISA will have to define within these rules. It also wants feedback on what exactly companies should report under this type of reporting process. What type of information should be included in the package that's sent over to CISA, if you will? And, And then what constitutes a quote-unquote, reasonable belief that a cyber incident has occurred, which would trigger that 72-hour deadline for reporting the cyber incident to CISA. Um, Some industry organizations have critiqued these these rules for their potential to distract companies from responding to cyber attacks with uh, these regulatory requirements. So the RFI actually targets that issue, too, asking how CISA should balance the need for situational awareness of this company um, in in addition to doing their incident response activities with meeting the reporting requirements. All right. And you mentioned there could be tens of thousands of covered entities by the time this is all done. What's the government going to do with all of these reports that it could potentially get in? Yeah, CISA really wants to convince companies that this is a a good thing for them uh, to report these incidents. The RFI lays out how Government agencies like CISA and perhaps the FBI and others can provide assistance to help investigate the incident, mitigate its consequences, um, and help prevent future incidents or further damage. Uh, you know, CISA and other law enfor- federal law enforcement agencies have highly trained investigators, so they're saying, "Help! Let us help you here." 
And and then CISO wants to use this information to thwart future cyber exploits. So if one company gets attacked, they want to make sure that 10 other companies aren't going to be attacked using the same type of cyber exploit. So that's how CISA thinks that these incident reporting requirements will help advance really the the national cybersecurity mission. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And of course, the idea of better communication, reporting, whatever you want to call it, between critical infrastructure companies and the government goes back as far as 9-11, the 21st anniversary of which we've, we just noted. Actually, I think the idea goes back further than that. The law that is actually passed now that is causing this rulemaking, is there a stick for companies that don't comply? There is. It gives CISA the ability to subpoena companies uh, who disclose, who don't report incidents or respond to requests from the agency within that 72-hour time frame if the agency has reason to believe that they have indeed suffered a cyber attack. And if the entity doesn't respond to that subpoena, then it could be referred to the Department of Justice for uh, civil action. So these rules are, are really among the most far-reaching cyber requirements to have ever been passed into law. And it starts to shift what has largely been a, a voluntary relationship between the public and private sector on these issues. But Easterly last week really emphasized the collaborative goals of the incident reporting process here. It's hugely important to make sure that we are not overly burdening the private sector, particularly private sector companies under duress if they've been attacked. You know, CISA is all about helping. This is not to name, to shame, to blame, or stab the wounded. We are here to render assistance and then to get information that we can share with our partners while protecting privacy and protecting the victim. Again, that's CISA's Jen Easterly. And Justin, did they say what the format of these meetings would be? Are they in person? Are they going to be in downtown theaters and auditoriums? And who actually do they expect to attend? Yeah, well, they, they do They do have a website up that shows the exact locations in the, in the, the cities that, that we mentioned, and some that we didn't mention here in this report. But um, they will be held in person. So they will be, you can send your comments, of course, to CISA through the RFI process. Or you can show up to one of these meetings and uh, get some FaceTime, I guess, with officials and, uh, and, and give your input there. And uh, in terms of the type of people who would, we would expect to respond, of course, there's going to be industry associations. The Chamber of Commerce has had a massive interest and influence in this issue dating back years. And it was notable when they actually lent some support to this legislation that eventually passed into law earlier this year, as opposed to opposing it as they had previously. You could also expect IT organizations who provide services, uh, IT services that are then attacked via a cyber attack, who will have to also be uh, taken into account under this reporting regime. So associations uh, and companies in that sector will definitely be very interested in how these regulations are crafted. And the status of this whole effort now is they have proposed rules, and that's what they're going to take and parade around. They, they're crafting the proposed rules now. They actually have another about uh, 12 months to just come up with some draft rules, and then they'll have another six months after that to finalize uh, that into a final rule. So th there's still quite a bit of time here and folks are eyeing end of 2023, 2024 for this to really come into force. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. All right. You got it, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. 
Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? 
Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And 
a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay, so, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right? And diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.